Deep Night did not think it was very good. <laughs> Went flat. Simple as that. I mean, he goes on. He goes on, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize. My dad, though, had to point it out. The reason I bring it up is my dad was like, and he's like, and Mrs. Maisel in there. And I was like, Mrs. I was like, oh, that's what she's from. I was like, I was like, why do I know this girl, but I don't know her? Yeah. I'm like, because I've seen a million fucking Amazon Prime ads for yeah. Mrs. Maisel, but never watched a single fucking episode. So I'm yeah. like, this woman doesn't exist to me. I've never heard of her. I mean, I know what Miss Maisel is, but like, yeah. I, you know, just seeing her for the I, first time, I, I was just I like, I know what a Miss Maisel is. <laughs> <laughs> I know what a fucking Miss Maisel is, all right? <laughs> the policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my That's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. I'm Ryan Saunders. I'm one of your hosts. And with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasulis. So, for those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us comes up with a theme for the week and then the other two gentlemen have to program a double feature in reaction to that theme and this week was actually a little bit different um it's, i guess i was being a little controlling with my theme because the theme i selected for this week was largely inspired by the fact that the three of us went on a little field trip I'm here in Chicago, and the Chicago International Film Festival is going on right now. Um, it's a festival I've typically worked. I've worked it for over eight years now, and this was my last go-around, so I got to attend as simply as an attendee. So that was kind of fun. You know, I was able to check out a movie without feeling feeling the, the pressure of thinking that uh, all the other movies weren't going to play. You know, so that was a nice weight off my shoulders, and I thought... You know what? Wouldn't it be great to just get the guys together and go see the latest film by someone over the age of 80? Uh, because that's something that I've always found very attractive in film. I've, you know, long joked that, you know, you have to be 65 years old to be allowed to, to make a film, right? You know, especially in this day and age um, where it seems as though youthful ambition can sort of suffocate a film even well beyond uh, the age of 40, sometimes it feels like. So... I thought let's you know let's take it really extreme and let's look at some octogenarian cinema and so there was one on the docket at the film festival EO the Jerzy Skolomowski film and uh, I'll I'll let Marsh introduce that one I won't take any more thunder from it um but that is that was the topic this week was like let's look at let's look at another film maybe by an octogenarian, someone who is who's turned eighty and is still churning out films because it's uh, it's kind of an odd mythical land. The the films of filmmakers who are over the age of eighty, something changes, you know. And the double feature we have today, 
I think is very revealing about those changes is how you define late style, late, late style in, in this situation, um, both in terms of energy level, in terms of subject matter and form, all sorts of different things. So I'm, I'm really thrilled with with what we've what we've got here. So since I already spoiled one of them, Marsh, you go ahead and you can you can introduce um, the Skolomovsky film. Yeah, well, uh, it, it is what you said. It is the <laughs> the latest donkey uh, picture. You know, we love that. And uh, it was, of course, written, directed, and produced by Gerzy Skolomovsky and his wife, Eva. Uh, I know produces his films and is very intensely involved in them. And it is uh, a very, you know, small film, relatively speaking, I would say, uh, by an old man, you know? And it's uh, an old man who has been making movies for a very long time. On and off. <laughs> On and off, yeah. And, uh, you know, for those who don't know, Skolomowski, of course, you know, came up in the uh, 60s in Poland in the Walsh Film School sort of movement, you know, worked with Polanski and Vida, wrote and directed and starred in his own films and was a very prolific, you know, writer uh, and director for a while and ultimately became one of those wandering auteurs of the cold war era where he was in france and germany and the u.s you know making uh, movies all over the place and of course he certainly slowed down his pace uh, in the 21st century i believe his last film was essential killing I right think so, which yeah. was well over a, a decade ago at this point he spends most of his time these days uh, painting uh, and I think that's something you can see in this film in terms of, uh, you know, when we talk about old man shit or old filmmaker shit, you know, a lot of the times, like, what's interesting about it is they, you know, strip away some stuff that they don't think is necessary anymore, you know, and that can often make uh, uncommercial products, you know, but other times just interesting works. And I think uh, EO is... Uh, a film that has a, a sort of formal rigor to it, you know, a, a very like modernist formal kind of conceit, you know, this is a film after all, I should say, uh, about the life of a donkey. And that's really what it is. It's a, a riff more or less on Ahasard Balthazar, which Skolomowski was in competition with at the Cannes Film Festival <laughs> in 1966. Uh, and he said it made him weep. Me too. Yeah, and you know, so it's that. It's a, it's asking a lot of primal uh, questions about animals and humans and casting perhaps a, a, a negative light on the uh, out of control world that we uh, find ourselves in today. And uh, yeah, that's, that's EO, you know, we'll, we'll get into it. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, so I sort of strong-armed everybody into, like, let's do EO, you know, so it's a little abnormal here where, you know, we didn't, Marsh necessarily didn't pick EO as part of a program, but the two of you did pick 
the other film, you had a little conversation and came to a consensus, and it happens to be a familiar face uh, yeah. for those who, who listen to our show, and it was, I was excited when I heard what the decision was. A bit of a younger man, actually. You know, the Sk- Skolomovsky is 84, and the film that Andy, I'm going to have you introduce is from an, from an 80-year-old. You know, he's freshly an octogenarian. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about that one. Well, yeah, savvy listeners will uh, certainly recognize this name, this this director, because he was a guest of ours quite recently. Uh, the film that Marsh and I discussed is 2022's Dead for a Dollar, directed by Walter Hill. Um, yeah, Walter Hill is back, folks. (laughs) It's Walter. Yeah, Walter Hill is back, and he's pissed off. uh, Or he's just trying to pay tribute to Bud Boddicker, who uh, the film is is dedicated to. This uh, is a Western set in 1897 near the 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 tail end of those wild frontier days and the film concerns uh christoph waltz who plays uh max borland who's a, a a bounty hunter of sorts and he is hired by Hamish Linkletter, who plays uh, Martin Kidd, a, a, a wealthy industrialist and friend of the army, as he's described. Uh, he's, he's hired to go rescue Mr. Kidd's wife, who has been abducted by a, a black soldier, a buffalo soldier by the name of Elijah Jones. And he's taken her off to Mexico, where, as Peckinpah would say, all outlaws go to die. Uh, but they're also requesting a $10,000 ransom from Mr. Kidd. So he wants Borland to bring back his wife and... Maybe Jones, dead or alive. Um, complicating matters are a, uh, a sort of mixed bag of supporting players. Borland is joined on his journey by Sergeant Poe, another uh, Buffalo soldier who is uh, good friends with Elijah. And he has a map that can lead them uh directly to Elijah, apparently. Just like Rambo, Last Blood. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just go right there. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> very, very fortunate turn of events. But also, there's another man that's going to play a part in some of the events, and that is the uh, outlaw, gambler, gunfighter by the name of Joe Cribbins, played by Willem Dafoe. And Borland and Cribbins have long been adversaries of a sort, I suppose. Uh, nemeses, if you will. And he's a, a man that was put in prison by Borland, and I guess he gets out, and there's a question of whether or not they're going to have a final showdown. But before all that, Borland's got to go find... Mrs. Kidd, played by Rachel Brosnahan. Uh, all you Maisel heads will recognize her <laughs> as the, the titular Mrs. Maisel from Amazon's uh, comedy, I guess. I think it's a comedy series. Sensation. Yeah, Sensation. Um, 
And there's another uh, recognizable face in there, I, I think, as well. Benjamin Bratt plays a sort of Mexican landowner, general bad guy kind gangster. of gangster <laughs> character named Tiberio Bar Vargas. Vargas. <laughs> Tiberio Vargas. Uh, they yeah. only say it like 500 times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, they're all eventually going to wind up in a town uh, in Mexico and, and have it out. Uh, but things are not necessarily as cut and dried as they seem. Uh, we'll get into some of that intrigue, the twists and turns of Walter Hill's Dead for a Dollar. So yeah, that's the other film. Uh, I think, you know, just out of curiosity, um, we all just wanted to see it as a brand new film, and, and uh, you know, Walter Hill's age certainly helped matters there, but... You know, none of us had seen it, so we all went in blind to this one, and, and I think the question on our minds was, was, does Walter still got it? And I think that's really going to be the, the question of the day, you know? That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's the film. It, it made for a very interesting double feature, I'll just say that <laughs> to me. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you both uh, for, for great descriptions of these films. It's always interesting watching brand new films and then trying to talk about them. I almost feel like I have a harder time remembering a brand new film when trying to like reflect on the experience of it because it still inevitably feels like a bit new, even if something like Dead for a Dollar is filled with things that feel very familiar, you know, because it is like a bit of a looking back type film to a certain type of cinema. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of impossible not to just laugh at the myriad of contradictions you find when you put both of these films together. Uh, you could go on and on about the, the visual differences between these films, between the fact that one is very plot heavy and the other one is, is it simply is not, you know, it's more meditative. Uh, but then conversely, the meditative film is extremely high energy filmmaking, kinetic filmmaking with EO, and then it's very laid back, uh, to say the least. With, with Dead for a Dollar. And I think maybe that's probably the best place to start, is thinking about, you know, we program these films thinking about filmmakers being 80 years old and what that looks like on screen. And I think that the thing about Dead for a Dollar most reminded me, of course, of some of the, you know, albeit extremely different, but like some late Clint Eastwood where it's very unadorned. It's oh, yeah. simple. It's straightforward. You know, when I had seen the trailers for Dead for a Dollar, I was... I was like, oh, God, you know, like, look at this sheen. Look at what this movie looks like. And I mean, to be honest, you know, I, I don't think it looks great, but I, I was not necessarily won over by it. But in the act of watching it, I soon gave up, like, I gave up the color grading thing. You know, I just accepted it and dealt with it. And I think that sometimes it looks okay, depending on, you know, whether it's, like, just supposed to be really dusty or the way, like, things are, people looking through windows and stuff like that, you know? It's got that antique photograph flavor, yeah. you know, this very... Sometimes. Yeah, some, sometimes, yeah. right? But the whole thing has, like, a brown, yellow, uh, 
you know, sheen yeah. on it. It looks like an Instagram filter, you know, but I think my mind was able to filter it out. I just like kind of gave up caring about it. It felt like, but you know, part of it too, I think it's just worth bringing up the viewing experiences. It was really exciting seeing EO at the festival, seeing it big and loud of this like brand new sound system at the AMC and the sonic landscape of that movie is crazy. And then today, you know, Marsh and I watched it at like dead for a dollar at eight in the morning, <laughs> sipping some coffee, you know, oh, yeah. real old man hours. And it felt nice, you know. Um, but yeah, I think maybe that's something we can we can chew over a bit is just this the octogenarian energy yeah. between these I, films. I mean, just speaking to that, just speaking right away for me to the to the to the way in which I also saw these two films. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not an even matchup, unfortunately, for Walter Hill. Because yeah, I also you know watched it VOD at home at seven p.m. after a long day of work, and it was bright in the room still, uh-huh. you know. And 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 yeah, seeing EO uh, as as Ben Sachs, I think, pointed out the the you know friend of the pod and, and great film critic in his own right. Uh, it's, you know, before the film, he had turned and, and said something like, you know, uh, I think it's incredible that we're still going to be able to see a film like this in a movie that's usually reserved for the MCU. Mm-hmm. And he was 100% right. I mean, it was a special experience to see that film and to think about Skolomovsky, you know, working on that sound design, that very intricate yeah. sound design, and the music cues and and the mix of it was 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 so uh, so rich and 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 had so much presence, and you really were enveloped by that film. Whereas for me, like yeah, watching Walter Hill's. In my view, kind of creaky, <laughs> creaky, <laughs> late uh, return to the game, like on my TV with you know a, a shitty sound bar, and and I I felt like I wasn't necessarily, I felt like I was watching a movie. I'll put it that way. Yeah, you know, and I I don't mean that necessarily in like a good way. I I really was like, okay, I'm watching Walter Hill's new movie. Um, but with EO, just simply by by virtue of the fact that, yeah, I was able to, to see it in an amazing theater, like, it was just such a more immersive experience. Um, yeah, I felt like I was living it. Mm-hmm. The tension between the two is kind of incredible because... Skolomovsky's film, even more the narrative is about like texture and light and sound, you know, like really like elemental cinema, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, Dead for a Dollar is this digital VOD movie that is not a pastiche, that is not postmodern. It's just literally him trying to make a 50s Western. Yeah. And specifically a Boddicker Western or an Andre de Toth, Randolph Scott Western, perhaps. Like a just three-star Western, you know? Like simple and also, you know, in a way, elemental in that it's like asking questions like... uh, 
what makes a man. You know, it's like returning to like the simple themes of the Western. And it does have, you know, a twist and several twists in there as well. But like, it's just, yeah, he's he's going back to the 50s and it's not ironic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like really interesting. And whether or not, you know, yeah, the film is hit or miss for me, you know, like I would say, yeah, I, I definitely liked it. And it has like some major, major flaws and issues, you know, but there's something about it that I just found touching in its sincerity. And I think they're just such different impulses for these, for these directors. Yeah. You know, your, your question, I think that you, you tried to kick off was about, you know, the, the idea of a director at that age and and perhaps what's pushing them or what's motivating yeah. them or or you know what what are they trying to see and show us and you know i i think that i've seen plenty of films by very aged directors that are still groundbreaking and experimental and playful and in this case like Skolomovsky has a very like forward glance to me you mm -hmm. know like this is a movie that still sees cinema as a series of possibilities for where we can go new places we can explore and I think, Marsh, as you even have described it, you know, Walter <laughs> Hill is clearly looking backwards. Uh, he is trying to reclaim some of his past glory as this, you know, this great genre filmmaker, a guy that's been incredibly influential for a lot of action filmmakers today, you know, people who grew up watching his movies. So yeah, Walter Hill is trying to show like, I can still do it. I can still make these films, but also that he's like, I want to make a, a, a yeah, a, a Boddicker Western. I want to make a 1950s Western. I want to, I want to make a clean Western on a certain level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to give in to the impulses of, of our of our contemporary cynicism, uh, I'm I'm gonna do my Walter Hill like 1970s cynicism, but in a much more organized classical Hollywood kind of package, and and I think yeah, in, in that regard, it's like you can see what he's what he's doing and what he's going for, but but yeah, I think I'm just so much more excited by by a Skolomovsky or a, or a Godard or an Agnes Varda who late in their life just stopped giving a fuck about everything to make something that, that they, they needed to make. Like they had this impulse to make and it, mm -hmm. and it wasn't just to simply prove that they could still, I don't know, like make a decent movie, but to, but to examine something through, you know, 
80 plus years of experience on this planet. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Because um, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but I think EO is like maybe a masterpiece. And I can't remember the last time I saw a new movie and like felt that way right away. You know, I was pretty shook by it. Well, that's because you haven't seen any movies recently in the one five zero aspect ratio. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's part of it. But then even for Dead for a Dollar, I was like, thanks, Walter. That was nice. You know, like get some sleep. You know, like I, I wasn't excited. <laughs> you mean you're telling? Are you telling him to get some sleep? You're yeah, like, yeah, Walter, just like yeah. go take a nap. You know, yeah. like <laughs> he'll sleep it off. You, <laughs> yeah. you did it. Yeah, totally. But um, no, I completely agree. There is something so liberating about EO where it's the kind of film where suddenly the whole image can get red, the camera starts spinning in sync with giant electric um, windmills, you know, and like the, the sonic landscape be becomes like heavy metal. And it's just like, here's someone who has shed all pretense and is just kind of unfiltered doing whatever they want on screen, but with this moral seriousness to it, which I guess is something these films also kind of have in common. Oh, yeah. Both of these films in their own way, I think, are actually quite morally serious. And to be honest, I like the Walter Hill script, uh, which is a weird thing to say, of Dead for a Dollar, like a bit more than the finished film. Like it might have been interesting if if someone else had directed it, but it's sort of hard to detach that from the experience but also i think eo is just a lot more like yeah yes for it's like moral moral uh it's moral weight it's moral implications it's also a very playful movie oh yes i yes. mean i i found it at times like very very funny and and very very you know charming and 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 very light as well it's it's a mixture of of both of these things mm -hmm. and unfortunately for me like dead for a dollar uh, boy, it really could have used a little more brevity in it uh, because I just felt like it was serious. I felt yeah. like it, the, the tone was was one that, look, in old Walter Hill movies is like fucking awesome. He makes these movies about just shitty people and mean people and no one gives a fuck about anybody and everybody's just, just in it for themselves and mercenary and and you know i mean go back to our conversation about southern comfort uh look at extreme prejudice a movie where everybody just fucking wants to kill each other at every fucking moment it, it, oh man you know it's like it's like he, i felt like he was trying to to have some of that here because there is this kind of like the title dead for a dollar that's the value of a life in this fucking shithole country but at times i just kept thinking to myself boy like a you know where are the jokes in tight spots you know that's another big thing for walter hill sure and, and i i really could have used some of that to to sort of break up the the moral seriousness yeah of, of i mean you made a great point just by saying it's so clean you know, this isn't a Western with, like, mud, you know, or people looking dirty. It kind of is reminiscent, then, of a Hollywood B-picture from, yeah. from the 50s because of how clean it looks. It just also happens to have no color that those films did have. Yeah, know? I mean, I think the only, like, I think really the only actor who is bringing... Uh, any weird energy is Luis Chavez as Romero, oh, the kind yeah. of like go between between Vargas and the Gringos, and like it. Arguably, it's like a bad performance, but it's a different performance. Yeah, yeah. And I think he was hitting 
just weird notes, and I was came to appreciate it just simply because, yeah, the tone of this film is kind of even keel. I mean, I think Defoe is a delight, as he always is. Um, but he just doesn't have much to do, unfortunately. It kind of feels like know? a home movie whenever Defoe's on screen yeah, to me. Which is awesome. Yeah, I mean, I don't <laughs> mind that, but... <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think there is something well there's a couple things that i think these movies do have in common number one they both have a kind of travelogue element and i think skolomovsky is as intoxicated by the landscapes of poland as hill is by new mexico here like i think he's you know i like that the traveling you know you know like landscape dissolve to the sun stuff you know very simple very like you know, economical, very Walter in that sense. And I kind of dug that stuff. And they're both using drones, right? So it's like old old fuckers getting the drone out to, you know, test the waters, uh, look at these landscapes in a different way. Even for me, the the differences, though, in how the drones were deployed yeah. between the two films, it's, it's such a, uh, a stark contrast. The, the drone footage in EO was like dizzying, was, was I, I, I feel not trying to obscure the fact that these were drone shots, but to sort of emphasize the fact that these were like mechanical views of the landscape. Yeah. And, and especially the ones where, you know, he really starts up high and then like dive bombs down towards the ground. I mean, I, I felt like I was on a roller coaster. Like you, you, I, I kind of like, woo, I got a little like vertigo for a second because of the, the, the rapid descent of some of those drone shots where, you know, Walter Hill is just like, you know, hey, if it were the fucking 80s, they shot. would have used uh, they would yeah. use some 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 <laughs> Vietnam vet who's a helicopter pilot who would have done some awesome aerial photography. And now drones are just have replaced all those right. old fuckers, right? It's Man, just... that one drone shot in EO that was either going into or out of a waterfall, like my brain couldn't Whoa. process it because it also seemed like I'm the footage was positive. reversed. Yeah, it was yeah. reversed. Okay, but like because of the movement of the drone and then the reversed water and how it looked like you know the water was being sucked back up but we were going farther down like i felt like i was floating yeah. it was insane what that image did to my mind look Mar- marsh and i both recently watched michael bay's ambulance uh, i don't know if that's how you're supposed to say it or not <laughs> that's but right. that's how it's written you yeah. know uh but we both watched that and you know people have obviously like commented a lot on his extensive use of of you know daredevil drone work in that film and i gotta tell you the the drone uh the drone cinematography in eo to me was like so much more impressive than what michael bay was doing with that shit Mm -hmm. uh i mean it was it was complex it was it was frightening it was uh breathtaking in in a way that still you know conceptually i think contributed to 
the swirl of complicated feelings we're, we're having while watching that film. It's amazing how instinctual the photography is in EO, even though it's so clearly very, very carefully choreographed and planned. Because that's like a thing, you know, that it kind of stands apart with some other octogenarian films. Like something I love about the late Clint Eastwood stuff is that it's so clear. First it's, take cinema. Yeah, like first take. for takes, a dollar. Yeah. yeah, filmed as simply as it can be. Truly, yeah. I mean, Dead for a Dollar, like, it does feel like it was just fired off in this routine fashion. Um, but so much of EO, whether it's mixing drone footage, when the camera's locked down, of course, there's naturally a lot of handheld stuff, like, right alongside the donkey as it's moving around. But then other crazy things where there's, like, half dissolves. There's that amazing moment where the silhouette of the donkey turns into the trees at one point. And then even when we get those POV shots, which he's doing something to the lens. I'm not like exactly sure what it is, but you know, he's not, he's like doing something that makes the image look as though it's being perceived through, you know, the side eye of a donkey, you know? Um, and just the amount, just how intricately designed all of that was, is such a stark contrast with so many other octogenarian films where it's like, we're going to do this as simply as we can. Well, see, and I think that's know? it. I think that's the thing that we've been like, you know, really kind of hitting on. It's that, it's that Skolomovsky is, is, you know, using all this sort of new, I'm putting that in quotation marks, like technology that's available to him and embracing yeah. the newness of it all. And, and, and is, is playing and is experimenting with it and, and kind of go, wow, I can do this. That's cool. And I, it's like, he's like leaning into, into it. Whereas like Walter Hill is using it all to be like, Okay, but can it still look like a, a, a you know, a tall T or whatever? Like, can, I, can I use this digital camera and somehow, you know, make it look like a Technicolor film or mm -hmm. some shit like that? Yeah. And it's like, nah, man, like, like you, you, you should have, you should have leaned into it more. You're making a goddamn digital fucking movie. Like, like I almost, in retrospect, wish it had looked more you know, digitized or whatever or digital, yeah. uh, you know, like I, I wish it looked like fucking public enemies at times, I think, sure. because I think it would have had, and I know that's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to make a classic Western, but I, I, you know, it's, it get it gets caught then in that no man's land of me just being like, Boy, this looks like one of my fucking like students production one, you know, yeah, like does. like lighting assignments at times. I mean, one thing I also think they have in common is is kind of a narrative thing, and we haven't really talked too much about the the plots really of these films. So to connect them, I want to say like something like uh, they both have plots about you know people or animals who are being used or being owned or being confined mm. in some way yeah. and are trying to escape. We get, of course, EO, you know, making making a break for it uh, and, you know, going on this uh, zany adventure uh, because of it. And, and likewise, in Dead for a Dollar, it's a, a matter of escape for, you know, the woman, uh, Rachel, married to this, like, horrible businessman uh, and Elijah and Sergeant Poe, black soldiers in, you know, the United States military. And yeah. so there is that, you know, escape desired. Sure. In, in a sense, like, right. Then I guess if we're going to see her as that, like, just like 
Eo, Mrs. Kid, you know, gets passed around from quote owner to owner throughout the film mm. as as various men at times uh, uh, exert their control and authority over her. I don't want to get too lofty here, but I was thinking, you know, maybe that's an impulse of a, of an older person, you know, this. Uh, creative liberation, which we've covered, right? And Skolomovsky's creative liberation here is to, yeah, make this like very uh, playful, formal, uh, crazy art house movie. Yeah, and well, then Walter's freedom to, you know, do like you said, Andy, yeah, just well, can, uh, can I make the tall tea? Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't help when I look at like films like these. And, and I, I think with just a lot of movies from, you know, strong directors and 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 I would especially I think feel this way about you know older directors experienced directors I have a tendency sometimes to like watch their movies and just be like okay which one are you like where are you in this movie and and in EO it's like yeah Skolomovsky is is EO he is this 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 vagabond who has traveled all over the world to these various places and these various systems and worked in, in various environments and had uh, a, a life filled with rich experiences. And, and I, I was sort of looking at, at, at EO as if I was looking at, at Skolomovsky and his treatise on, on you know, existence, on, on what does it all mean? You know, does it mean anything at all? Um, and so in, in Dead for a Dollar, I was doing the same thing where I was like, which one's Walter Hill? Because there is this element of, these dudes are old and and they're quote past their prime perhaps but but man maybe they can still deliver the goods trying to prove they can shoot straight is is what Walter Hill's basically trying to say you know i was like is he joe cribbins i was like is he the guy that you know, when we open, he's wallowing in jail. He's not doing anything at all. Yeah. And he just wants to get out there and, and go to Mexico and play cards and, and, and slap leather and do all these things. And he feels more kindred uh, to Joe Cribbins, Walter, Willem Dafoe's character. I just like, I, I feel like it's such a, such a shame because he is, to me, a much more interesting and dynamic figure than... Then Christoph Waltz's character is just the sort of like the best shot with a pistol or rifle in the territories who is who is certain of everything along the way. And 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 there's no question to me he's going to come out on top. But a guy like Cribbins is 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 a bit more of a roguish character. And, and I think I just I I wanted the story from from his perspective. You seem to be a man of strong opinions, English Bill. Mr. Palmer. If you please. Now let me put you on notice, Mr. Cribbins. I'm a very, very good card player. I do not intend to be taken in by any tricks of your trade because I am not a man to be taken advantage of. I can defend myself adequately here in this rough terrain. I'm also here on business with Mr. Tiberio Vargas, who, as you must certainly know, is Lord of all he surveys in these parts. Now, since I think you're just another bullshit Englishman, the kind of fella we gringos have already whipped twice in two wars. Why don't we cut the palaver and just concentrate on playing cards? Well, hell, English Bill, your luck's bound to change sometime. So 
I guess I'll call. With two itty bitty pair. Son of a bitch. Some fellas just can't get away with a bluff. They lack the character for it. I'll tell you this, Mr. Cribbins, you're damn lucky I'm not wearing a gun. And I'll tell you this, English Bill, you're damn lucky I don't put a bullet up your ass just on general principle. Now, I was you. I'd get out of my sight before I run through all my good humor. Yeah, I almost forgot that Willem Dafoe was in the movie for a chunk of it because I do wish he had lingered more on that roguish figure and just the oddness of his character. You know, he was playing it so safe the whole time. I mean, when I finished the film, you know, my first thought was like, ah, I'd love to go watch The Tall T again. You know, like I just adore those movies. But when I finished EO, I mean, I was thinking about just the animals in the world. I was thinking about my cat, you know? I was thinking about just, like, what we take for granted and the way they perceive the world and what they might be feeling. Like, I I feel as though my perspective had shifted by the end of that film because of, like, how much he lingered on things that he felt so passionately about. Yeah, I mean... I saw Skolomovsky joke about this in an interview where he was like, yeah, I was talking to my wife and we were like, yeah, humans really like sympathize more with animals sometimes than other humans. Like we should do something like that, you know? And EO is just, you know, despite as we've been discussing, it's like crazy form. It's an extremely emotional film, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, I think we all felt it. Uh, And, the yeah. whole audience did. Yeah, and that's through, of course, you know, the great Kuleshavian donkey performances by, like, six donkeys or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, just the way, again, it's it's constructed. And I was even joking in my mind, like, the way it sort of views the world, it often uses, like, these red lights, right? Mm-hmm. Which symbolize, like, something like human destruction or machinery or, like, these kinds of, like, you know things that EO perceives as like loud and and destructive. Right. Uh, And I was like, he's going into Koyanis Katsi mode, you know, (laughs) like straight up because so much of the movie too has all these implications of like, yeah, a world coming apart at its seams, like climate disasters and fucking soccer ultras beating people with fucking, you know, baseball bats and shit. Like there's also, yeah, so much darkness in this movie as much Mm -hmm. as there is uh, playfulness and humor, you know, it really runs the gamut. And like Brisson's film, it like, yeah, it puts the donkey through the fucking ringer, man. It really does. And I think it like really goes out of its way to use the Kuleshov effect in a way to like actively suggest that animals do understand so much more than we give them credit for. I feel like that's part of the argument of the film. Like he gives the donkey flashbacks and like, like love. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I mean, and it's, it's, it's so tender and beautiful, but I was, you know, it it really kind of climaxes at a a moment very late in the film when, when EO is being used to cart away a bunch of dead. And were those foxes? Were those like weird Polish foxes? I think or they were, were those mink. dog? Oh, minks. Yeah. Okay. I think it was like a fur farm. Gotcha. Yeah, there's a moment where a bunch of minks are being killed off screen. We hear the electricity. And EO, when he's being asked, you know, being forced, being whipped 
to take these minks and, and their fur off to, to wherever EO, you know, kicks his hoof back and like knocks the guy out, presumably dead, it looked yeah, like, which was pretty bleeding. sick, you know? <laughs> but so much of that was just a, a, entirely accomplished with the editing, you know, because of like what EO was listening to. Because again, we were never seeing these things. And when it would cut to his eye, I feel like was always the signifier, of course, that like this is something EO understands. This isn't something that's a mystery to him. Well, and, and you know, it's it's also like a, a projection, right? And that's where this idea of like the, the Kuleshov mm-hmm. effect comes in for all of us is that animals, I do believe that that animals have emotions uh, and, and, you know, um, a big part of that is, is, is also just like us projecting our emotions on, on animals. You know, Mm -hmm. when we talk about like, Oh, my dog, I just embarrassed my dog or whatever. And like, I don't know if a dog has, I know dogs can be happy and sad. I don't know if they have the impulse to feel embarrassed at times. Maybe they do, but we're, we're often like projecting some of those onto our animals. And yes, we're projecting onto the, the, the blank stare of EO uh, in so many situations because of cinema, because of his understanding of, of that, of dynamism, of contrast, of addition by subtraction, whatever you want to say. But, but again, for me, it's like through that, we're, we're also, you know, it's, it's then this, this mirror effect of us looking at, at these things through the the eyes of a donkey to to think about our own journeys and experiences and like there's like two scenes to me uh in the film that that are also for a polish filmmaker i think um referencing the camps the death camps you know invoking uh Polish guilt, perhaps over the Holocaust, yeah. and and that you know the the scene we've described with the mink, which is like a fucking, it's like a death camp, right? Mm-hmm. And that that EO is in, and for us to to like feel the weight of those things that EO might not necessarily in the moment understand, but but we can't miss it. We it can't be lost on us, and then you know not to get ahead of ourselves, but certainly the the very 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 uh, apocalyptic, abrupt, <laughs> cataclysmic ending of the film, mm-hmm. uh, where EO is herded along with uh, a large group of cattle, uh, and I'm sure you can imagine where that's going. But, but yeah, you know, like that's what I think I I really really uh, felt so impressed by was that it isn't just a movie about animals we don't deserve them you know like there's so much more to it than that it's it's as much as this is about a donkey this is about like us and i think you even said it in your intro marsh like the strange very strange weird fucking world that we as humans have have created yeah like we are compared to eo like far more, yeah, animalistic in that regard, yeah. and and and, uh, and far less noble, I would say. Ho mangiato chili e chili di carne, centinaia. Anzi, una volta ho mangiato anche il salame. Quello vero. Yeah, I was going to ask, did either of you like have a favorite 
episode on the travelogue you know there are so many different people that we meet was did one like really stick out for you yeah i mean to me the soccer game is the funniest part of the movie until until shit gets too real but yeah there's a moment where uh you know eo has has broken free from like the third home he's at in this movie uh and he like goes into goes into town uh and he gets like picked up by these firefighters and then he's released, you know, just by some like drunk guy who says anarchy rules uh, yeah. as he like releases him from being tied up to the fire truck. And then EO like stumbles upon a very like just, you know, podunk soccer game. And despite all the players being like, like a beer league, yeah, they're Poland, all like comically know. overweight. They're still like insane psycho fans like European football style. And so this whole scene is totally absurd. And they, you know, the game comes down to a penalty kick uh, and EO gets really like excited at all the commotion. And then like, the guy misses the the PK and is arguing that it like the donkey caused him to miss. <laughs> and there's like a fucking riot basically that breaks out. Um, man, like that shit was so fucking funny. So funny. It's, it's brilliant the way he handles it. It is. It was so it was so goddamn funny because as you mentioned, like this penalty kick is being delivered to the fattest goalkeeper <laughs> you've ever seen. I'm trying to help our listeners visualize this. He is incredibly fat and he is incredibly hyped he's bouncing around he's ready for it and the excitement the the drama it isn't even about the fact that like this fat ass saved it it's just like the guy like it just shanks it off the crossbar, it the crossbar <laughs> and they are celebrating like the fucking like it's the end of the goddamn world cup you know like and it's just this meaningless little goddamn thing it wasn't anybody's achievement it was just a a, a fucking bad shot and it's like yeah it's like the goddamn bowls or something like that i mean it's it's incredible it's so funny i really like when eo shacks up with that truck driver who then tries to like provide some food at a rest stop to to a woman and that scene was extremely funny because that was like a good like key to to like help us understand that like much distance has been traversed that we were like no longer in poland because he was speaking english to this woman yeah and he kept trying to offer her food i'm assuming that the idea was that she was probably like a refugee or just someone that like had like no access to, to any grub and he kept like pulling out all the different things he's like oh polish sausage very good very mm-hmm. tasty and then like all these different meats that he was offering to her and then he caps it off in very good humor and like a misguided gag of okay so sex now yes and she runs off and he's like i kid i kid and i couldn't help thinking about that poor guy you know he's like ah he blew it you know just like yeah kind of misread the room there in, in yeah. that moment, but he's just trying to have a laugh. Yeah. You know? And for his troubles, he gets his throat cut. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which was a startling turn of events. Yeah. Oh that, my God. that really took me aback, for sure. I'm also fixated on just like the the very opening of the film where, you know, EO is in this like podunk circus. Uh, but... 
he is cared for and loved, you know, by his his handler and his performing partner. And very early in the film, you know, in this ironic sort of twist of fate, the circus is shut down for exploiting animals. And that's the, the cruel irony that plays out the rest of the film is that he is separated from the only person who has ever truly loved him and continues to love him, you know, at least through part of the movie until Mm -hmm. she vanishes as he continually gets displaced. Um, But Skolomowski plays with that subjectivity and with that, like, romance, I mean, straight up between them. And that creates, again, you know, this projection of human emotion where like he's explicitly given the damn donkey flashbacks like Brasson would never you know Brasson's way more fixated on fucking how cruel humans are and Skolomowski's like but what does the donkey like think and the donkey mostly is thinking like I miss my girlfriend yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. I used to be a big shot yeah I used to be in the damn circus I used to be somebody yeah yeah (laughs) I used to be the opening act for the Cube Man. The Cube Man. <laughs> Holy oh, fuck. Yeah. That was Marsh, I, Mar, the biggest reaction I heard, most audible reaction in the entire goddamn movie was Marsh sitting next to me when they introduced the Cube Man. <laughs> Marsh was, I was going nuts. He was so tickled by the Cube Man. Yeah, especially because of the reveal of being this man coming out with a giant cube made out of metal poles and just spinning it around like a madman. It really delivers. Marsh, but yeah. fucking, he got he got hyped up about yeah, the cube. Yeah. I'm the cube man's number one fan. Yeah, a sold out show, and no one loved the cube man joke more than than Marsh did. <laughs> it's yeah. the simple pleasures. Yeah. You know? um, Unfortunately for me, like you know, again comparing it to Dead for a Dollar, like. I just felt like there wasn't, for all that he was like sort of trying to, you know, specifically hitting on this one idea that you've brought up, Marsh, which is like how how there's just so much cosmic irony uh, at play throughout EO. And, and, and I think with Dead for a Dollar, again, it's like to me really could have used a little sprinkling of irony yeah. because it's just... Everything is just telegraphed in it, you know? The the people are set up to be who they are and who we think they are. And there there really aren't surprises. I mean, we've said there's like twists, but I gotta be honest with you, I didn't really see any of the things that happened as twists, regard regardless of the fact that they were meant to sort of like just suddenly like change the power dynamics of this this group um but but it's like come on it's it's from within the first 5 minutes you know from the moment that Hamish Linkletter is introduced as as the the wealthy businessman who's hiring him to rescue his kidnapped wife Hamish Linkletter by the way uh putting in an absolute like uh, you know no pun intended here dollar store performance <laughs> Uh, doing like an old man voice. Did you guys like, did that that, uh, uh, irritate you guys? Because honestly, he's seriously... He's just there. He's he's talking like this the whole time. Like, I'm the wealthy industrialist hiring you to get my wife. And it's all above board. She's been kidnapped. It was so fucking bad, dude. So bad. And you just right away, you're like, all right, well, he's the bad guy. (laughs) Well, look, Andy, when, you know, when Bodicure made Seven Men From Now, it was obvious that Randolph Scott would 
get through all seven men from the beginning and it it still worked you know that's Uh, true i mean i see it as like the way i read it i guess is is you know it it is like the film is deliberately like minor right minor key minor film you know and to me i saw it as sort of like yeah the the plot at the despite the fact that it gets kind of convoluted like the movie gets kind of like you know it gets like stuck in in some of these situations but like ultimately it's it's you know the simplest thing in the world it's they either choose you know right or wrong and that's kind of like the journey that they go on. And I think, you know, to your point, it's like the Vaults character, I think he, he does great. You know, I think Vaults is, is fine. You know, he feels like a real actor in a movie, unlike some of the other actors in this movie. Yeah. Um, but the implication at the beginning through like these flashbacks when he's talking to Defoe is that like as a bounty hunter, he's actually like a giant piece of shit who shoots people in bed. But then that's not really like developed and that's not really even like performed by vaults. Like that element, whether it's maybe it's a projection of Defoe being like, you're like this, you know, but there's other ones we see and he's fucking shooting guys when they're in bed. (laughs) And so I guess like to me, the movie in, in, I think Walter's mind is like, it's about how, you know, it's never too late to make the right decision, you know? And, and for him, that's, you know, defending the, the women and the black soldiers and, and fighting it out in this town. And even Defoe's, like, joining in with them before, of course, his <laughs> ultimate demise as well. But, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it necessarily works, but that's sort of, like, what I saw it trying to do and just being like, yeah, it's really about, you know, all these people are shitty and at this moment, like, he did a good, just a good, one good thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's there. It's Generous, there. maybe. I will say I was kind of impressed, and maybe it was sort of like being impressed by the act of um, something missing from the film, but just, you know, you see films by uh, people who are this old, and they try to incorporate elements of, like, feminism and race into their films, especially something that's like a genre piece. I will say, you know... It, there weren't a lot of groaners in it. I thought Walter did like a totally respectable job. Like he incorporated it in a way that I don't think some of his other films do as much, you know, especially in this genre. And he didn't like put it front and center stage in a way that I thought was distracting. So, you know, props to, to you know, I mean, yes, he was 79 when he made it, but, you know, props to the old guy for sort of like kind of responding to the world he lives in without it feeling necessarily like it's this big revisionist statement. You know, he tried to like embed it within the nature of the film. Because I feel like, you know, you get that old and you start doing stuff like that. Sometimes it's kind of like, oh, yikes, oops. You know, like <laughs> some some misfires there, but I, th- I thought overall, you yeah, know, the Clint scene in the mule when the black couple gets pulled over yeah, by it's, the cops. That's like exactly <laughs> what I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah, we love our old kings, boy. Though you know, but for me, it's it's even uh, you know, yes, like all this stuff. Look, if this had just been like a very well composed, uh, simple western, uh, I you know. I, I would have really, really appreciated that. But, but you know, there are times when I felt like he was like doing things formally that were just kind of like having me scratch my head a little bit. I mean, there was no cohesive approach whatsoever to like uh, how to transition 
from one scene to the fucking next. I mean, one minute the guy's just like wiping every goddamn shot. Yeah, off. there's like George Lucas wipes in yeah, this movie. Yeah, there's George Lucas wipes. There's fade ins. There's fade outs. Constant there's fades really to black. Really abrupt yeah. cuts at times. Uh, man, you know, like I was just kind of like, what the hell is going on? He has some weird music cues at a time. At, at times, like the music sounds pans. like video game music. You know, yeah, I kind of liked it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like, there's, there's even just this moment where, like, there's some bad guys that get introduced, and it's like, oh, which guys? Oh, these guys. And he does like a, a, a quick whip pan to them, and then there's just like a little, a little like hint of a kind of like almost spaghetti western esque flourish on the soundtrack, but that's not developed. That's not carried throughout you know it's just kind of like uh what should i do here i'll do this here you know like it feels very like slapdash at times in terms of just like the construction of of the film and at times for a guy who i believe throughout his career has has a, a very keen eye for composition like moments of just like me scratching my head. The amount of card games where there's not even just like a clean shot of the fucking cards on the table. Yeah. Like, I felt like he was like just fumbling little things like that of, of, you know, how to even just sort of stage some of these, these moments, these, these duels, these showdowns. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know if this is like a hot take, but you know, I always kind of thought that the first episode of Deadwood, the one he directed is, I mean, it's the pilot, I guess, but it is like, I think like the worst looking episode <laughs> in the series and like the worst cut and just like the worst arranged. Cause I remember like watching it and being like, Oh, is, is this what the show's like? And then it immediately like picking up. I mean, there's great stuff in the first episode, you know, he still did a really good job, but you know, when you compare it to the rest, I think that there's, there was something missing and you know, you wonder when it happened for Walter. Like, I think Wild Bill is really cool. That's what it's called, right? Or yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Well, well it's know. got all the VHS stuff for the the flashbacks, the black and white VHS flashbacks. Yeah. Where's that crazy old man energy? And in the beginning of the film, that's what I mean. They, like, they introduce this idea of, like, you know, perspective and, and, you know, these shifts to black and white and guys remembering things certain ways. And then that's just totally abandoned. Then there's no more of it. Like Wild Bill's construction is incredible because it is this constant flow to the present, to the past, and the the, the past being alive in the present. And, yeah. you know, I was hoping for, again, like just more of that, maybe less wipes and then more, you know, just, just sudden shifts into like monochrome. Right. Well, even though you guys are kind of shitting on him, we should mention this uh, Dead for a Dollar was shot by an 80-year-old man, Lloyd A. Hearn II, who was Walter Hill's cinematographer from Trespass 1992 and on. And A. Hearn shot Wild Bill, Supernova, Last Man Standing, Undisputed. So nice to see, you know, that I do they like still that. have a working relationship. Yeah. You know, whether or not we think this film looks good or not, I think it's an extremely mixed bag. Yeah. I think, like, yeah, it's so, like, pallid and pale, too. It's just kind yeah. of, like, 
just disgusting. You know, Miss Maisel too. I mean, I I loathed her stilted performance, but oh, also yeah. like there's a lot of extended kind of like close-ups of her, and it has that like BBC masterpiece theater look mm-hmm. to it. That's just like ah, this looks like shit. You know, like, <laughs> she looked like kind of sick. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, he. You know, oh God, Walter, Walter. You know his his everything. He 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 he. He laid it. He left nothing. You know, he he left it all in the field. I'll put it that way. You know, there's there's so many little things in here from his his career and from other films, films he's seen, films he likes, and films he's made. And like, there's this thing even early on where it's like he's got to have it in there. You know, he makes a a reference to classic Greek mythology and storytelling where he he describes her as uh, you know the Helen of Troy you know he's he's setting that up but I was thinking and I, I don't think it was meant this way but when when Christoph Waltz asks is this the face that launched a thousand ships I was like no <laughs> not at all you know good gravy i mean man there's even just some really sloppy moments that that i don't i mean god knows what it was like being on this set with it with a yeah with an 80 year old walter hill and his 80 year old cinematographer um but like man there's this campfire scene where where like you said they've got this big vista and they're all just camped out under the stars a classic western moment and i don't know if either of you noticed it but the incredibly bad mix of of like magic hour and then in close ups, it's just fucking like pitch black night. You <laughs> yeah. know? Hell yeah. Like, yeah. oh Walter. Like, yeah, what there's happened? only so many shots you can get in a day, Andy. You know that. <laughs> I know. Like these guys, they they lost magic hour and they just went with it, you know, like, well, we got everybody out here in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, we got to the moon, you know. Yeah, Let's we go. gotta we gotta get this thing shot, you know. I mean, I was thinking too, very superficially or at least on a shapes level you know these movies have circles in common as well because walter's jamming on the sun and skolomowski's using like a busby berkeley uh, angle to uh you know at first show eo in the circus and That's then right. later in like other you know at the horse at the fancy horse farm there's like this like horse racing contraption but yeah skolomowski's using the circle to like show us some kind of like you know enclosure or entrapment of like the circle of life yeah this god's eye view of like yeah look at this fucking shit you know yeah and i mean talk about a face that launched a thousand ships you know eo's face in this film all six of the eos uh that are on display really beautiful animal and i and i thought it was kind of funny when i was reading just a little bit about eo today i came across this article about just some production troubles they had shooting during the pandemic and one that was like not necessarily related to that but like kind of poetically is that i think it was the day of filming the first donkey they had didn't have the necessary vaccines which is just like kind of oh like ironic yeah. <laughs> that like they're going through all these COVID protocols and here's a donkey that doesn't have the vaccines he needs to like be on set and participate in the production, mm-hmm. uh, which is too bad. I think they Bart got the him. bear would never. No, Bart the bear's a professional. He would have shown up fully vaccinated, <laughs> not made everyone uncomfortable, you know? <laughs> well, I, I, sp- speaking of production troubles, I don't know if any of you read about some of the the quote production troubles that they had on the set 
set of Dead for a Dollar? Did you no, hear? No, no. Uh, apparently, accused. yeah. Apparently, there were there were there were uh, you know there was like an actor and a stunt performer or whatever who who complained that that uh, the, the safety <laughs> the safety standards on Dead for a Dollar were not uh, were not up to to snuff that mm. they felt uh, you know they were. Um, they were struck with debris in a few situations where they. It was like an have. Alec Baldwin set. I mean, you know, it's a good point. I, you know, you wonder if if it's you know this is clearly being made in in the wake of of that or concurrent with all that drama that happened on Rust and and were people hypersensitive to it. But again, you have a guy like Walter Hill who's like, I'm going to show you how we did it back in my day. <laughs> yeah. And like, I heard that like one of the things that this actor like complained about is that just to, to get like smoke in, in, in the scene on the floorboards, they would just, they, there was a guy just like shooting the floor with blanks or whatever to create smoke. Oh my God. And like some guys like, that's not how you're supposed to do it. And then, you know, apparently in the article that I read, there was a guy that was like, well, that's how we always did it. You know? And it's like, I mean, yeah, maybe in the seventies or the eighties, but you know, See, I appreciate, you know, when it's terms of how we always did it. I like Clint getting everybody home by 5 p.m. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of that's old the man, the old school thing. approach, you know, not as much. I mean, I guess there's still the joy of like Friedkin saying that he hired arsonists to do the explosions in his films. <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's still fun. But yeah, I mean, yeah, we wouldn't time have thieves without thieves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 100%. Absolutely. Let's go. Yeah, Skolomowski didn't need to. Skol- Skolomovsky. Chicago did, style. Did not, yeah, Chicago style. He didn't need to fire any blanks to have, you know, control over the elements or nature in this film. He he sort of had that, like, godly Ho Shin touch, I felt like, at times when we were wandering through the woods, you know, and seeing some of this stuff. I mean, just like, yeah, some of these images of EO in the trees and, like, all the different weather that he, in, like, encounters on his, Dude, on his journey. Dude, it goes like Night of the Hunter when EO's in the forest at night and all these other animals become like prominently featured right. in this like big scary you know place for him oh yeah and then all the lasers and the, from the hunters and the gunshots yeah. going off oh that was insane yeah that's like it's like this beautiful like dark nighttime and you know he makes the digital photography look so nice especially some of the low light stuff and then yeah to have those piercing green lasers coming in and just like circling around it felt like abstract because mm-hmm. of the directions they were all crossing mm-hmm. as some wild stuff yeah i mean yeah eo is he's trying to take the ordinary and make it extraordinary at 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 so many moments it's it's showing us the extraordinary in the ordinary when these things are are removed from from the context of narrative of plot of us understanding like how did all these guys get laser sights out here in the woods it's like it's like that's not the point you know Mm -hmm. the point is to embrace you know this this shattering of 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 nature with these these very alien uh sources of light you know whereas dead for a dollar is 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 taking the extraordinary at times and making it very ordinary for me, you know, (laughs) unfortunately. Well, then even thinking about some of these different glimpses we get into people's lives in EO and then, like, the extraordinary quality of having so many, like, key details removed, 
like what did you guys make of the Isabel Huppert stuff um in EO I like was kind of perplexed by it but was also very compelled by it I don't know if there were some like plot details I missed I mean you know for me too I just got to say you know we were at the festival we were in a festival crowd and 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 uh when they cut to suddenly you know Isabel Hubert, the 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 tittering of the film festival crowd and their their recognition of <laughs> ah Isabel Hubert, you know? I had no idea she was in it. It was a big surprise for me. I knew she was in it, but you know, yeah, just the 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 little the little the little murmur of the crowd, you know, the knowing nudges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Isabel Hubert, you know. Suddenly, you know, I mean, like. I, I didn't have any issue because uh, again, you know, this was like a series of vignettes and, mm-hmm. and, a, and, an, and an exploration of like, of, of Europe as, as much as it is all those other things that we talked about. So we're getting these kinds of, of little moments of, of, you know, where is Yo going and what is he encountering? And so they have this moment of, of, oh yeah. And then he gets dragged back to Italy by some gigolo priest or something <laughs> like that. And, and wrapped up suddenly in, you know, some aristocratic European fucking wealthy shit bag drama for a moment. And then the fact that it is this, this, I think really, really interesting moment because for us after all that he's gone through it seems like wow he's made it he's got this nice this nice italian boy you know or young man you know who's who's taking oh look at they're they're well off they're well to do and then it's like eo is is like oh yeah they're 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 shitty <laughs> you know yeah. like i'm fucking out of here <laughs> like i don't want to get wrapped up in it this was like weirdness. eo was watching a chabrol film you know and going yeah. like ooh. Well, i think the placement <laughs> is key it's the last sequence before the end Mm -hmm. and when you think about it like that i mean look we've seen him be owned by the circus by a a fancy horse farm by some farmers you know uh in a hospital in a fucking like mink concentration camp and then yeah he has this tender you know sort of like traveling uh moment with this kid and we're like oh he's he's compassionate you know for eo this is nice and then yeah it's it's revealed to be this perverse European farce with Isabelle Huppert. And it's the class thing to me stuck out where it's like, well, where do they send him? To the camps. To the, yeah, to the slaughterhouse. Right. The rich people, you know, right. of all the fuckers in the film who, you know, passed through this donkey's life. Like they are like, yeah, we're selling the estate. I'm moving back to France. Like kill this fucking donkey. I mean, it's like insane, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, no, they don't gift him, like, that beautiful carrot necklace that he has earlier in the film. That was lovely. I've never seen one of those before. Is that, like, something that donkeys get every now and then? That was his birthday, right? That was, like, a birthday celebration for him. That was the the celebration of the opening of some kind of factory or something like that, you know? But, yeah, he has this, like, he has at one point, Eo has this necklace that is, like, covered entirely in in carrots, and he's able to, like, grab the carrots, and it's ingenious, because then the weight of the carrots will just, like, bring them down back to within reach of his mouth i'd love to just give one of those to a donkey mm-hmm. i think i will you know i haven't been inspired i'll go like buy some carrots go to a petting zoo and see if i can like get one of those around he their does necks. have like a tender moment where he is at sort of like a petting zoo he is amongst 
other donkeys and there were all those children feeding carrots, you know? And I think that's it because it isn't, it isn't necessarily about like is you know uh, you know when when is EO made it you know when is he going to be <laughs> you know on easy street after all this because again this is a grand um, a grand statement about about not like I said not just a donkey's life but about our lives and our journeys and and the ups and downs that we all go through and and how moments of of tenderness are are very quickly and and sometimes abruptly shattered by the realities that that this world brings to us these these inexplicable shifts of fate that often follow you know, when we're suddenly riding high and, and you know, the valleys and, and, and the peaks, it's a, it's a very beautiful exploration of like stoic philosophy in that regard. Because, you know, is the movie uh, heartwarming? Yes. Is the movie sad? Yes. Is it life affirming? Absolutely. Is it, is it almost, you know, uh, pessimistic in its existentialism at times, certainly. But it's like being able to 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 weather that, to keep marching forward, to keep you know one hoof in front of the other is like is simply the key to to living a rich life, a life that Skolomovsky has has lived, uh, a life of I'm sure like EO, of, of many ups and downs and twists of fortune, you know, losing out to Ohazar Balthazar back in, in you know, 66. <laughs> yeah, this is him getting back at him, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the ups and downs, he's yeah. like, I'm finally up again. That didn't kill me, you know? What yeah, doesn't you. kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> yeah. you know? No, EO has finally made it because, yeah, he's beaten out Balthazar, you know, he's getting the final word in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He's just like Jeremy Irons in Moonlighting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I gotta be honest though, I, I'm familiar with with uh uh several of his films, but like reflecting back on it, the only one other than this that I've seen is Essential Killing. Uh that's the only of 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 his of his films that Late I've actually only. Yeah, I, I like his yeah. cool like seventies horror movies, you know, Deep End and The Shout. I remember like thinking those were really awesome. And Moonlighting is really cool too. Yeah. That's so, those are the only others I've seen. Those have always been on my list, you know, and they're just like in there on the pile with so many other things. Mm-hmm. But for some fucking reason, the one that I've seen is is Essential Killing. I mean, I know why I saw Essential Killing. <laughs> We all know. Yeah, why yeah. You saw yeah. It was funny when I saw Michael Kutze at the festival, the, the founder of the Chicago Film Festival, and told him I, I saw EO. His immediate reaction was like, "Ah, Yerzy, a wonderful actor and a wonderful man." <laughs> you know, and that is a, a blind spot for me. Is is the films he directed and starred in himself? That's something I'd like to. But to you check know, now out. that I think about it, have either of you seen Essential Killing? I have not. No, it's very similar to EO if you think about it, right? Because Vincent Gallo play uh, here. Hold, buckle up. Vincent Gallo <laughs> plays a, 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 a Middle Eastern man. I think it's sort of vague what country, right? Uh, who is um, attacking a, a convoy or something? I think he the, opens with him. I think he does right, like shoot a RPG at like the U.S. Army or something, and then gets like swept up and and arrested as an enemy combatant, and then goes through the 
the the circuitous journey of being a man, you know, suddenly held prisoner in the war on terror and goes from like the Middle East eventually like all the way to Northern Europe, right? Isn't that the thing? And 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 escapes at a point and is wandering around in the wow. forest. Yeah, it's actually so many similarities between the two films now that I think about it. See, now you've got me reflecting on like recent Walter Hill too and just like how I somehow forgot to mention earlier, you know, mentioning that I found elements of um, the more contemporary issues being dealt with in a respectful manner in um, in Dead for a Dollar as like thinking back just like a few years before. When did the assignment come out? 2016. <laughs> yeah. Talk about old man groaner, you know. <laughs> that was a little messy. He tried. <laughs> so, well, I guess the ultimate question, you know, maybe in in this regard, uh, is is in in retrospect through our conversation, um, if part of the question is like, you know, can the old guys still can they hack it? Can they play? What do you think? You know, Skolomovsky. Still got it? Oh, yeah. If anything, he's blossoming. You know, I mean, he's that thriving. was... thriving. That shit was wild. What about Walter Hill? Can we see a follow-up from, from, from Walter Hill? Dead for a dollar, too. Dead for five dollars. Yeah, I don't $5. think this is the last time that we're going to see Max. Borland? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You know what? I would Walter like, Hill will ride again. Yeah, I want I want Walter to take like the Michael Mann route. I want him to like write um, some dime store western novels. That well, sounds kind of nice. He has written a few uh, comic books. That's true. Yes, I did know about that. I think it's very easy with guys like Walter Hill, um, with these filmmakers who have had such great careers. For us to, for, for audiences, especially for vulgar tourists and cinema geeks to sit there and go, he's still alive. He's just sitting there. Somebody give him $20 million, you know, like give him the money, let him do it. You know, like all the people that are desperate for John Carpenter to, to get behind the camera again. And I think it's like, we've talked about it with Carpenter, like how, how, how sharp Carpenter is in a certain respect of just kind of being like, man, I'm fucking old. I've made great movies. Yeah. And like. I'm fine. I'm enjoying my life right now. Yeah, I think like John Carpenter knows the war is not good, and like, he's like, okay. Not everyone is Francis Ford Coppola. They don't want to yeah. spend their the retirement years like reinventing cinema digitally or whatever. Like, you know. And look, I love Twixt, you know. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's tough out there. Yeah, for 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 the olds. You it know? certainly is. Walter Hill, take a take a nap. You've earned it, old man. Yeah, get some good rest. <laughs> so, other than this, you know, when this is your this was all your brainchild, uh, are there other recommendations you have uh, for for our listeners to to check out of of octogenarian uh, cinema? Yeah, I mean, I think my answers are going to be pretty obvious. It's actually pretty rare that people make movies over the age of eighty and. Uh, I mean, you know, I was trying to see, like, hey, have any of the Manuel de Oliveira movies um, I've seen, were those, any of those, was he 80? And it looks like I haven't seen any of the 80-year-old work from from that guy. Uh, so the 90s and after. Well, yeah, some of that, and then the 70s, when he was in his 70s, not, like, from the decade. Um, so, I mean, but from what I hear, that shit's very, very good. So I guess I would recommend people check that out. But, you know, funny enough, we actually covered um, a film on the podcast from someone who was 80 when they directed it. Can either of you remember what it was? 
I only realized this today when I was looking at lists of 80-year-old filmmakers. Rhapsody in August. Kurosawa oh, was in his 80s when he made that. Right. Yeah, he did that in Matadayo when he was in his 80s. Wow, one of our first episodes, if I'm not mistaken. yeah. yeah. But so, I mean, talk about like a, just a tender, beautiful film full of life and vibrancy at, at such an age, you know. But, you know, the, the, the classics, I just, I am a huge fan of the octogenarian run of both Clint Eastwood and Frederick Wiseman. I think some of their best films have been made in this period of their life. And I'll just single out Richard Jewell and Ex Libris. Those are films I think about a lot, you know. Ex Libris made me cry. I think it's one of Wiseman's most beautiful films. I think it's really touching and it's just like a testament to what a library can be and how it comes together. It's just a really remarkable piece of work. Um, and then, you know, Richard Jewell, I don't, you know, Richard Jewell never made me cheer needs up. Needs no introduction. But, but yeah. needs no introduction, <laughs> yeah. you know. Like, you know, I've told you both, but friend of the pod, Alex Cox, told me that Richard Jewell was the first Clint Eastwood movie he saw that he liked. <laughs> See, there you go. It is what converted Molly to like being a late Clint auteurist. You know, it was, uh, I, and I, I think it may have been the first one she saw, because then once she saw The Mule, she's like, I get it now, you know, because I do love The Mule as well. But yeah, Richard Jewell is is really nice. And, and of course, Ex Libris. So those are some of the favorites. You know, I also love Varda's late, late period stuff, more just like self-reflexive documentaries, looking back at her life and work. That stuff's really tender, you know. You know what else you love? Joris Ivan's A Tale of the Wind. Was he in his 80s yeah. when he made oh, that? Yeah. Mm. See, if I had known that, I would have like just talked about that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the, the craziest old man shit I have ever seen. Yeah, that's the one that most closely resembles the energy of EO. You know, like that thing is just, you know, balls to the wall. Like, let's go. That, that's a really, yeah. So Joris Ivins' Tale of the Wind, everybody, like that. You want to see octogenarian cinema, that's that's the one to go and find. Um, well, I had a ton of fun, though. I mean, it was really nice going to see the movie with y'all. You know, it was good to be back at the festival, a little, little gauntlet field trip, bring some of the, the current cinema to, to our listeners, you know, shake it up a little bit. But um, I have a feeling we're probably going to be looking back, you know, for, for next week, potentially. So, Marsh, what is the, what is the topic uh, next week? <laughs> well, I had such a great time, you know, having, having us all here in Chicago in person and going to the festival and seeing EO, it was just, uh, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, it got me thinking that uh, maybe we should explore this, this festival thing uh, a little more. And so I want you to take me on a festival flashback and program films that have won the coveted <laughs> <laughs> gold, <No>. gold. <laughs> Hugo <laughs> at the Chicago International Film Festival. And in fact, we've already featured some on this very podcast. Mm -hmm. How I Ended This Summer, winner of the Gold Hugo, Motion Makmoboff, recipient of the Gold Hugo. So, you know, SIF's been around since 1964. So uh, dive in and uh, see if there's anything that uh, strikes you as interesting. And we'll, uh, we'll program our own retrospective. I got to say, when you look back at all the awards 
that festivals have given out over the years. You look at what won the Palme d'Or over the years. Chicago a bit more provocative. I'm actually kind of impressed by what the juries would latch onto. You know, some stuff that just sort of falls through the cracks and disappears, but um, it's an interesting list. I'm familiar with it. <laughs> I bet you are. <laughs> I've had to put together a lot of spreadsheets as it relates to the, the, the gold Hugo. Oh, now I gotta go out and buy goddamn Michael Kutz's book. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Guess what? I did you a favor, bounty man. You're going to thank me for killing my old boss? He was going to spoil my fun with you. About time you did something good. You know, you can ride out of here, Joe. I took his money. Maybe I would earn it. Besides, there's no avoiding it. You and me got a reckoning. I'm giving you a clean start. Don't be a damn fool. Amigo, I was born a fool.